Well, very good morning to you. It is a privilege to be here at Bethel again and uh, see everyone here this morning. We had a wonderful drive over. This fall weather is a great time to get out and drive around on a sunny day, and it was a lovely time. The only regret I have about being here is not to be in Floyd to hear Milo this morning, but I'll catch up with him another time. I was looking back and realized that it was one year tomorrow since I was here, I think, and we were in the gym and we were talking about COVID issues. And I think at that point, Floyd was in the hospital. Well, this year, Durrell is in the hospital and uh, still on the ventilator today. Um, sort of stable, but still in critical condition. Keep praying for him over there. There's many earthly issues we could worry about this morning. We have an election this week. We have, I don't know, church things going on here and there. And we've got uh, sickness and illness. But I'm grateful today we can lift our eyes above these things and focus on things beyond and higher than that. I appreciate the songs that we sang this morning, some very worshipful thoughts in those songs. The, the second song I believe we sang, Great God, How Infinite Thou Art, How Poor and Weak Are We. If we could keep those things in our mind, that is the essence of what worship is, recognizing ourselves in the presence of an almighty God and recognizing that we have to do with him. I'd like to think this morning of uh, what the angel said in Revelation. This, this verse comes from Revelation 14, verse 6. We're going to consider our highest calling this morning, our primary reason for existence, and our, I guess our eternal occupation, we could call it that. But in Revelation 14, verse 6, it says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now when you read Revelation, I don't know how you read it. Sometimes I don't know how I read it. Uh, we look at Revelation, we think it's a lot of future things, there's a lot of that in there, there's symbolic things, there's probably some history in that. There's also just some eternal principles built into what we see in Revelation. And in these verses, I believe there are some future elements, but there's also some timeless things here. And that one timeless thing is the call to worship God. That's in this verse. This call to worship, this struggle of worship, is a, is a theme in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's built through the Scripture about who we will worship, who we will bow ourselves to, or who we serve. And uh, if you read the Bible that way, you'll find story after story where people are grappling with that choice about which way they're going to go, who they're going to serve and bow to. You see it in Sinai where God is descending on the, on the mountain in a cloud of smoke. And down here they have this calf built. And people have a choice. They can say, I'm going to worship the God that's up on the mountain, or I'm going to dance around this calf here in the, the valley. And that's my choice. You see Elijah on Mount Carmel with 400 prophets of Baal, and he all by himself is a prophet of God, saying, you're going to have to make a choice today who you're going to serve. You can't do it halfway. And you saw how the prophets did it. You see how Elijah did it. And there's consequences to the choice. You see Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego with a image 90 feet high on the plain of Dura, and they have to make a choice. Who are they going to be true to and worship? And time after time, you have these stories pointing out the great watershed choice that men have to make. 
And finally, you get to the book of Revelation. There's many mysteries in that book, many things I don't understand. But I do believe that Revelation probably speaks more about worship than any other book in the Bible. And partly is because it's a recap of a lot of the history that, that goes on throughout time. And you have this uh, great struggle going on between heaven and earth. You have a struggle between the lamb and the beast. You have a struggle between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of darkness. And the great question there, who will we worship? The battle of Revelation is a battle for the hearts and minds of men. And so we have this angel flying through heaven, giving a last chance, a last warning to all those who have not yet made up their minds. Fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. And that's, that's what we're called to do in this life, is make that choice. Now, I'd like to say a couple things about worship this morning. One is simply that there is a worship that is biblical and holy and acceptable to God and pleasing to Him, and there is a worship that isn't. It's because God sets the standard, and He says, if you would approach me, this is how I would have you do it. Therefore, there's a worship that God delights in and a worship that He doesn't. There's one that he accepts and one that he does not. And I believe it's very true that the elements that make worship acceptable are things that encompass all of our life, not just what we do on a Sunday morning. And my question is, do we understand and exercise the elements that make worship acceptable and which are we engaging in? The second thing I'd like to say is that worship is primarily a function of the Spirit not primarily a function of the body. So the Samaritan woman was convinced there is a certain place that I must do it. The Jews were convinced there's a certain method by which I must exercise it. And sometimes I think we're sort of convinced that if we don't have three songs and a prayer and a meditation, we're not sure if we did it. We, we, have, we have this way we do it, and it's probably good to have a routine to do it that way. But I hope that we understand that even though worship does take a form and a shape, it's not primarily found in the form and the shape. That's what we have to understand about worship. Everybody here this morning prepared to, to worship. How did you do it? How did we go about it? I can predict a few things. Most of us dressed up a little bit. We looked in the mirror at least a little bit, combed our hair, got our children ready, made something for lunch, rushed off so we wouldn't be late, came in quietly, sat down. Who taught us that combing our hair is the best way to prepare to meet God? Who taught us that getting dressed up is the best way to prepare to worship? I wouldn't have you come any other way. I, I suggest you wouldn't come as backwards as possible, but I, we, we need to understand that there's other things, too, that are important. Now, I happen to know that you can worship with boots on and muddy boots on. We used to live in Pasaco when we would go to church on a Sunday morning. We figured that was probably about the dirtiest day of the week. We would slog up the mountain a mile or a mile and a half and uh, get to church. You'd try to scrape your boots off before you go in, and everybody else did the same thing, and you'd sit down and worship God in muddy boots. And that was fine. I happen to know you can worship God soaking wet. One way we had to go to church was to drive to a place to park and then walk down through a creek up the hill on the other side. And the creek was, was usually fairly low, but there were some times it was higher. And there was a, a little concrete dam that went across almost all the way. 
with a gap, maybe four or five feet, that was left to channel water off to irrigate some fields. And we could walk across that concrete path, that dam, and then jump the rest of the remaining feet. At least I could. My wife couldn't very well. And so uh, I would usually clear it and carry all the stuff, and she would have to wade across at some point. And uh, when there wasn't a little board across that gap. Well, one morning I told her, you know, right here, you couldn't see it, the water was sort of cloudy. If you would just step off right here and walk upstream a little bit, it's not that deep. You wouldn't get in above your knees and you'd be all right. Well, she trusted what I said. And she stepped off, and the deeper she got, the bigger her eyes got. And she didn't stop until she was probably waist deep, a little deeper in the water. And she hauled herself back out of there and wrung herself off. And we walked up the hill to church and sat down like that and worshiped. Now, I want, I want us to understand this. I don't suggest you come that way if you can help it. But knowing that it's possible to worship God soaking wet is key to understanding biblical worship. And not only that, but the best time in life to worship is probably when you're pulling yourself out of a creek. That's a good time to worship. And by the end of the message, I hope you understand what I meant by that. There's an old English term for worship that was worthship. Holding something up as worthy of something. Having value. Having the weight of worth in it. Something that we would exalt and hold up. It's a matter of esteem and importance in my life. That was a concept of worthship. We worship that which we want to be identified with and hold up as as glorious and we hold up as important and to follow after. And worship is a matter of the heart long before it's a matter of Sunday morning. Worship is a deep thing because all of us worship something. I know we don't worship perfectly here on earth. Our minds are distracted. Our hearts are sometimes uh, overburdened. Sometimes our devotion lacks intensity. But I'd like to at least remind us this morning of the one place where worship is always perfect and always exactly what it should be. And it's a verse, it's a passage. I wish we could take time to read the whole thing, but we probably won't. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 4 and look at this passage. I guess for sake of time, we'll just remind us of what's here because you know it very well and go through a few things here. So if you recall, John has just spelled out what Jesus showed him about the imperfect things of church in chapters 2 and 3, and talking about the seven churches. Then he gets to chapter 4 and said, Come up hither. And John notices several things there in heaven. The first thing he notices was a throne set in heaven. It's a place of authority. It's a place of judgment. It's a source of life. That's the throne in the center of the attention of heaven. Then he notices there's one sitting on the throne. You see that in the first part of this passage. And on that throne, you can't really see it, but you sense that he's there. You saw a figure. All wisdom is there. All majesty is there. All power is there. All the perfect attributes of God that we hold up and admire and talk about and strive to be like is embodied on that throne. It's right there. And on that throne is a lamb. It talks about that in Revelation, the next chapter, chapter 5. A lamb on the throne as it had been slain. And so I want to read a little bit, at least, what happens around that throne. We'll start in verse 8 of chapter 4 and read a few there. 
Uh, first of all, it talks about the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. It says, they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne and who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now this worship was around the throne before the Lamb showed up. And so in the next chapter we have the Lamb coming to the, and taking the book that was in the hand of the one on the throne. And then worship starts all over again in verse 9. This is the four and twenty elders with uh, falling down before the throne again. And they sung a new song saying, this is chapter 5, 9. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all them that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And that is where worship is perfect because hearts are pure and the object of worship is clear and present and there is no distraction and God has their attention and there's worship happening because they are in the presence of God and they realize what God has done for them. Now here's something interesting. This crescendo of worship starts from the center and it's rippled throughout all of creation. You have the four beasts, you have the four and twenty elders, and it goes on and on and on until all of creation is just reverberating with, with worship to the one on the throne. Now, here's a question. Everything in heaven was created especially to be in heaven. Everything is native to heaven except one. Did you ever wonder where the 24 elders came from? I'm not sure in your mind, your eschatology, where they fit. But if you read what they said, it gives us a picture of what they represent. And it says that you have redeemed us from every tribe and nation and kindred. Where does that put them? That puts them here on the earth. It says that they were among men. They were fallen humans like us. And maybe they represent something. Maybe represent the the tribes from the old, the church of the new covenant, and maybe they're there representing that completion. I'm not sure how you fit that together, but by what they said, we recognize that they were brought there from here. It's an amazing thought to me to think that here's God with his throne, his throne platform or whatever, pulling up chairs and inviting the redeemed of earth to come up close and sit there around him and worship him face to face, at arm's length, in his presence that way. It gives me a picture of what Ephesians says, that he has made us to sit with him in heavenly places. Well, here's a visible picture of the redeemed of earth sitting with Christ in heavenly places, worshiping him 
at close range. I like it in verse 4. They're sitting on their seats. They're dressed in white. The next moment, they're on their faces. They're throwing their crowns on the floor. In chapter 5, they must be back in their seats because they do it all over again. And they are worshiping there. It's a beautiful thing, a beautiful place. This is the heart and the soul of biblical worship. It's thundering out one message. The worth and the glory of Almighty God and the Lamb that was slain to redeem us from among earth. Now, we're not there yet. We're not there. I'm glad God gave us this glimpse because we can at least envision it and worship with them, but we're not there yet. And we're still called to live on earth. And while we live here, we worship with those that are there, in a sense. We're still in this valid decision making these choices. But I'd like to do something this morning. Go back in, in time and follow a timeline of how men worship God and point out a couple of things. One is this, this evolution of how men worship. And the other thing is to point out some deep truths that are shown us about worship through how men did it and what men did. Because if you go to your Bible to find the definition of worship, you probably won't find it. You won't find in Scripture that it says, worship is when you do this. Worship is when you say this and this. What you find is that men who worship God then study how they did it and how God responded to it, you get a sense of what worship is. So I'd like to do that this morning. The first place I'd like to take you is in Genesis 22, verse 1. This is back a long, long time. This is an ancient history. This is the very first time in your Bible that worship is even mentioned. At least the word worship in Genesis 22. Let's go ahead and read a couple of these verses here. Genesis 22, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee unto the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of these mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went into a place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young, man, young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, first time in the Bible it's used, worship, and come again to you. Now Abraham's method of worship was quite simple compared to many forms of worship. It was one man all by himself, one altar that he had built with his own hands, placing on it something of worth and value just to see consumed to ashes, to reflect that God was worth more than the thing that was just consumed on the altar. And in that act, he was showing his obeisance to and his, his worship of an almighty God. I, I believe, I don't know, but I believe Abraham's knowledge of God was probably much more limited than ours. But he knew that there was a throne set in heaven, the one sat on the throne, and this was a way to approach God. That's what he wanted to do. He had no Bible. He had no shared faith with other believers. He had himself and God and his altar and it would be interesting to do a study on those altars. There's a lot you could learn from that. But this is the last altar Abraham built. And in this little passage, he asks him to go build this altar and take something with him that God himself designated and lay it on the altar and consume it. 
Now, it doesn't define worship here, but it shows us some things about Abraham while he did it that teaches us something very deep about worship. The first thing we see in Abraham was an obedient heart. It says that when God spoke to him, he got up early in the morning. It doesn't say which morning, how many mornings went past, but it just says God spoke. Abraham got up early and went, got his things together and went. He had not, um, didn't buy time by praying about it. He didn't wait around to get other, uh, rethink things or reconsider. In obedience, he went. Now, Abraham lived in the early days. We live in the latter days. But this concept of worship is true throughout all of earth. That the only way, and Abraham knew this, the only way that one can worship God is with an obedient heart. We, we can come to church, and we can sing tenor and bass, and we can make a joyful noise, but if down inside there's a disobedient spirit, that's the, the very premise, the very opposite of the premise upon which worship is built. We cannot worship God with a disobedient spirit. God spoke of Israel, you honor me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. Why? Because they made the noise, they did the thing, they, they went through the actions, but their heart was turned toward other things that were not God's will for them. The second thing we see here in his experience was a surrendered will. So God asked Abraham to do something that was pretty much humanly impossible, to take his only son for whom he had waited 24 years and raised him to that point with all the joy and love that a parent can offer. And here was required to go and lay this son down in worship to God. But Abraham knew that upon this premise, there is no worship and of God without a surrendered heart. See, Abraham didn't go to Moriah and say, I'll build an altar on my terms and take an offering of my choosing. He was going on God's terms, and that was the only way he could possibly go. But I want us to notice this. An obedient heart and a, a surrendered spirit was not the only things that got Abraham through this experience. There's something else here that, that was a new thought to me. Did you ever notice what he said in verse 5? Chapter 22, verse 5. It says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I don't know what Abraham was thinking. What gave him the right to say that? What gave him the idea that under God's command he could go up there and he'll be back in a couple of hours together? I don't know what he was thinking, but he did have perfect trust in an all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good God. And he went in that conviction. Hebrews eleven nineteen says, Abraham accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence he also received him in a figure. And Abraham knew that God was not going to fail in his promise. And so all the promises of God were invested in his son. And even if God would have to raise him up, he would do it. And so he went knowing that one way or another, they're coming back. I don't know what he was thinking. And it wasn't just obedience, and it wasn't just surrender. It was a trust and a perfect confidence in a God that could and would. That's the kind of worship and the combination of attitudes 
that God delights in when we worship him. But in that image of an altar is embedded a thought about worship. And we see in the New Testament in Romans 12, 11, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. That's the concept that we have about worship. Our body is either a living sacrifice or it's a self-centered, self-serving mess. We have one or the other of the choices. Our self is probably the greatest competitor to worship of God that we have. It's our ego and our pride, our self-importance that gets in the way of true worship more than anything else will. And the only reasonable thing to do with it is go and lay it down like Abraham did to Isaac. And then get up from there and walk in newness of life. And yet have a steady trust that if I yield my members as instruments to righteousness, that what gets up and walks off that altar is not something that's betrayal and loss, but something that God can do for good and for restoration and for, for, my, for my good. Now how does dressing up and combing our hair compare to attitudes like that when it comes to worshiping God? Let's do that, but let's do the other. Let's not forget that worship is a deep thing. There's many other examples. I like the example of Joshua. Joshua is in a different time of history, time of worship. They moved along from this one-on-one with God worship, and God set up a system and a way that people could do it together. And he said, build a tabernacle. And they put this tabernacle in the center of the camp and place that people could come to as part of a, part of a greater system of worship. It's a fascinating study, but it was a place where God and men could meet. It was part of a larger symbolic representation of God's presence. You know, we tend to look back and criticize that system. We think it's so external. It's so physical. And that's because we're looking at it from our perspective. But in their their day, it was a great step forward from what existed before to what existed then. It was a great step in the right direction. So we have this incident in Exodus 33. I guess it would be worth looking at that. We can at least think about that. In Exodus 33, when Moses came down and found the calf, and the, up, the outcome was, was 3,000 men that were killed because of their idolatry. And it says that as Moses was making things right with God, he left the, tabernacle, left the camp, went to the tabernacle, and everybody stood in the door of their tent watching as Moses went to the tabernacle and God came down and met with Moses and spoke to him. And then Moses left the tabernacle and came back to the camp. But in, in chapter 33, verse, um, verse 11, it says, But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. The people were not there. Moses was not there. But Joshua stayed. I, I just have to read a little bit into this. But here was a time in history when worship was very external in a way and very do this and do that, where Joshua, the son of Nun, found, found joy and belonging in remaining in the presence of God. What a beautiful thing. That's part of what worship is. I don't know if we've ever felt what Joshua felt, such a deep reverence and awe at God's presence that we just don't want to break it. We don't want to go away from it. We want to remain there as long as we can. Maybe we felt it in the woods that we're sitting there without pressures and just realizing how beautiful, how close. Maybe you've come into an empty church building someday and nobody else is here and you know God doesn't dwell here the way he used to dwell in the temple. But this is where God's people meet. This is where worship is offered. 
And here I am by myself in this place. And what a time to pray and think and meditate. Just a beautiful sense of, of remaining in God's presence. A beautiful thing. Did you ever beg like Moses did? If, if your presence doesn't go with me, don't take me from this place. See, worship is not just an action. Worship is love. Worship is longing. Worship is just enjoying the presence of God. I believe like Joshua did. And we can move along in this timeline. I guess, I guess Sunday school starts in five minutes. Is that correct? Is that normally how that works? All right. Um, the timeline moves along. We get to the temple. And the dedication of the temple, this was David's idea. Solomon built it. There was an innumerable sacrifice of animals. There was a procession that lasted for many, many blocks. There was uh, singing and dancing, and there was quite a feast. I think seven days of feasting. When God, when, when the temple was dedicated, it says the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple in such a way that the priests could not even stand to stay and minister in that, in that presence of God. But it was an intoxicating thing. The temple worship was an impressive display of sight and sound and sense and singing and organization. And it was quite a show. 120 trumpeters, many, many singers. The response was very joyful. But the man I'm thinking of here lived many years after. And if you get back to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was a man who was very familiar with the temple, and he was in and out quite a lot. And he, uh, he had lived after a period where the, the worship in Israel had died and become very passive and very um, externalized perhaps, and the presence of God was not was not felt, not known. But something happened that day when Isaiah was in the temple that should, should speak to us about what it means to come into the presence of God. And uh, when God came back to the temple in, in, Revel, in Isaiah 6, it said his, his train filled the temple, the temple shook, and it said the temple was filled with smoke for the second time. The first time was at its dedication. The second time was here in Isaiah's presence. Now, notice what he did. Isaiah did not jump to his feet and start dancing in the presence of the Lord. Isaiah did not break out in song and did not run around doing things. Isaiah fell on his face and said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Why did he do, why did he do it that way? See, the last time God came, there was feasting and celebration and dancing. And this time it was much, much different. So I believe that when God came that time to him, he saw something that he had never seen quite the same way before. He saw himself and his sinfulness and his shortcomings and his, his ego and his uncleanness. And the closer God got, the bigger his problems seemed, the, the, the more sinful he felt. And I think this response to God's presence reveals a deep truth to us about wor what worship is. The, the nearer I get to God, the worse I feel about my sinful, uncrucified flesh and my self-life and my shortcomings. And the greater my realization of God's holiness, the greater my understanding of my needs. And Isaiah shows us that sometimes the best way to worship is not to sing, is not to jump up and down, it's not to 
go and do something. It's just to, to fall on our faces and say, Lord, have mercy. I don't know about you, but have you ever gotten to church on a Sunday morning and sat there with your songbook open and say, and it hits you like a ton of bricks, how can I worship this morning with how I spoke to my children this morning at home? How can I worship this morning? Look what I did this week. Look what happened this week. How can I share a devotion with the attitudes I feel inside? How can I open my mouth and sing these things so glibly when my mind is a hundred miles away on everything but the worship of God? Sometimes the best thing we can do is stop our mouths for a while, bow our heads for a while and say, Lord, let's fix things first. Let's repent first. I'll show you one more. In 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. Israel was taken captive. The beauty was gone. The the worship system in the temple had stopped. The people were scattered all over the place. But over in Babylon, all the way around to the other side of the desert in Babylon, there was some beautiful things happening. You had uh, several young men there who had decided something very important. They decided it doesn't matter if there's no temple. It doesn't matter if there's no daily sacrifice. It doesn't matter if there's no ritual, no singing. We have set in our heart to do things God's way, no matter what it might cost us. We will be just as true to God here as we would have been over there. That was a commitment they made, and they went through some tough things to be true to that commitment. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to the image. Now, if, if you would describe the reason for our worship, what would you say it's for? I would say our worship is to exalt and glorify God. It's to lift up His worth. It's to, it's to show our dedication, our alignment, our identity with Him. That's what it's for. It's to lift up His name. Well, I'd like just to say this morning that, that Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego proved something in Babylon that is just as true in the Old Testament, I believe, as it is in the New. But their willingness to lay down their life for the sake of God in Babylon brought God just as much glory as the temple worship may have done in, in Jerusalem. There's, there's, there's a worship that cannot go deeper than the willingness to lay down my life for the sake of glorifying and honoring God. That is worship. There's no glory quite as rare as that which comes from offering myself as a living sacrifice when it truly, truly requires suffering and even death for the sake of being true to Him. And we worship like that. They worship like that. I guess in the eyes of all the province, nothing had brought God as much glory as the letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote. I think it was Nebuchadnezzar, getting one of those kings mixed up. After It was Nebuchadnezzar, after he pulled those three men out of the fire and wrote a letter. Glory to the God of heaven. I guess there was no worship quite so great as when they brought Daniel out of the lion's den and the king reversed the decree and decided that God was God after all because Daniel had proven it at the cost of his own life. See, everybody that worships God 
as a martyr does it voluntarily and does it because they choose to. And we can identify with Christ in maybe many smaller ways, but are we willing to take our worship that far and glorify God that way? There's one last step in this timeline. We could probably almost just speak of it, but let's go to Ephesians 2 yet. Ephesians 2, I believe that this is the description of the fullest, perhaps, fulfillment of God's intent for worship that will have this side of glory. But this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And I believe it's Peter that said, We are this temple to show forth the praises of him that hath called us into the darkness around. Be the light together in this living temple. You see, until Jesus came, man's understanding of what worship was to be was limited. Although there's some very beautiful examples of it. And here we find this fulfillment in which the temple of God is no longer the, the Bethel building. I don't know what you call this thing anymore, a chapel, a building. A, we call it the church because the church meets here. But when God's people are present, God is present. When God's people go home, God goes with them. We are the living temple. We are built together. It's a living habitation. It's not a dead thing of stone and wood. And the New Testament temple is a living thing of men and women who are joined together in this. You know, there's an accompanying concept that goes with this picture. In John 4:23, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that pairs very well with this concept of worship. When Paul preached in Athens, Paul said, God is not worshipped with men's hands. Or the things that men's hands make. He's worshipped in other ways. Now we meet in a building, but the building, buildings do not worship God. We come to sing together. We open our mouths and, and sing things. I don't know if harmony worships God or not. In a sense, God created that, so it's a beautiful thing. We go through the motions, but motions aren't worship. You know, the only thing that validates worship is when the attitudes that we've looked at, when the heart that we've looked at is in it. And so when we give an offering into the offering basket, it's not that we owe God this much and we get to keep this much. We do this in recognition that all that I have is His. We do it that way. When we open our mouths and sing, it's because we love to give voice to the words that, that, that say the truth about the Lord. That's what we're doing it for. We pray, we meditate, we listen to the verses that were shared this morning because when we hear it, we want to live it. We want to live it out in glory to Him. That's why we do it. And that's why we desire to know it. I'll just say this yet. What were the four and twenty elders doing when they worshipped? 
Well, in their example, we see self-abasement. They were off their thrones that God had given, on the floor before the king, casting their crowns before him. That is humility and self-abasement. How poor and weak are we? They were saying true things about God. Everything they said about God was true. And it was lifting him up. The third thing they did was everything they said that God had done was true in them. You see, when I sit there and sing a song about redemption and realize that redemption has never happened in my life, when I sing songs about worship but realize I have no interest in this, there's, there's no worship there. But when, when they did it, it was true. That's what I believe worshiping in spirit and in truth is about. Saying true things about the Lord and these things that we profess to be true have happened in my life. That's, that's true there as well. This theme in scripture from beginning to end is this question. Who will we worship and how will we do it? There's a consequence of this. Psalm says in Psalm 115, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. One, one way to tell if you're worshiping a false thing is to watch the trajectory of our life over time. Those that worship something false are morphed into the image and thinking of that false thing. But the opposite is also true. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And that's the greatest evidence, I guess, of worshiping God is a, a changing into His image. That's our goal. That's the evidence. And that is the, 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 the thing that happens over time that happens when we worship Him. So whether we're sitting in church or whether we're crawling out of a creek, may we learn to crucify the self-life and give place to the glorifying of God through our words, through our actions, through our desires, through the way we conduct ourselves. May God bless you this morning.